と。Welcome to another episode of Egg and Nights, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the wide and wonderful world of Japanese cinema. I am your co host, Chris Lucy Antonio. And I think I'm Aruba. Yep.、Uh, who knows what anything is anymore, Aruba?、Uh, I don't even want to know what anything is anymore. Yep.、Uh, listener, we are, I guess, officially doing a quarantine episode.、Uh, this was one that was planned many weeks ago, but due to. Different circumstances had to be postponed, and now that COVID 19 is on a rampage and it's the best possible advice to stay indoors and isolate yourself, what better way, what better excuse do we need to finally record an episode? My God. An excuse, but also a bit of a burden, I gotta say, because we're recording this episode. To make sure we actually are productive human beings, but at the same time, we're also recording this episode because. We have nothing else to do. Did you see that absolute bullshit tweet that was going around that said, like, oh, did you know that Shakespeare wrote King Lear while he was quarantined? It's like, fuck off. What? Really? Why? Yeah, like, wh- why are we comparing ourselves, one, to Shakespeare, two, like, just, just getting through every day should be enough. We don't have to be constantly being productive, considering that there is a global pandemic knocking at everyone's door. Maybe, maybe take a couple days and just. Just chill. Yeah, I live with someone who's very, very heavily immunocompromised. So a lot of my energy is, you know, into worrying about that. But also, I did something quite productive this week, Chris. Would you like to know? God. Go ahead. <laughs> I decided to start scrapbooking. Side note I discovered that I really hate scrapbooking. And now you're stuck with it. Yep. You can't, you can't just go out and get a new hobby. You are stuck with scrapbooking.、Right? I, I am stuck with it.、Um, I still have. I, I, I figured out all of my end elementary school、uh, memories tucked away. I figured that, that out. Now it's on to high school where、uh, the fan fiction gets cringier. As it does. <laughs> as, as all things in high school, everything gets a, just a little bit cringier.、Oh, and、yes. that's the experience. Oh, yes. Just like the experience with our film this week, we're going we're gonna to see how coherent and how、uh, much we actually have,、uh, how much we're able to motivate ourselves to talk about this particular film, Chris. Yeah, but before, before we get into that, I have a question for you, Aruba. Okay. Do you know what it means to get farinaed? That sounds sexual, but. <laughs> no! God, I. No, it is not, thankfully.、Um, Farina is a recent concept that was invented by fellow podcast,、uh, who I intensely respect and listen to all the time. We hate movies.、Uh, one of their. One of their cohorts, or one of their hosts,、uh, Chris Cabin, fellow film critic with a name that begins with Chris, Chris、oh. Cabin. Oh, shit. Uh. He came up with this idea of being Farina'd. And it's a reference to character actor Dennis Farina. Have you ever heard of him? Yes. Yeah,、uh, he was a. He was typecast as like a lot of、uh, thugs and cops and stuff like that.、Uh, mm-hmm. And he has a couple of known films like Midnight Run, Get Shorty.、Uh, he was in Snatch for a little bit. And it, he was like always. In a lot of movies, but he was never like a star. He, he never really、mm-hmm. mattered that much. And when he unfortunately died, he was not included in the Oscars memoriam section. Oh. oh. Thus, the, thus the, his legacy now to、uh, this podcast and its listeners has been anybody who gets left out. Of the in memoriam section for the Oscars. And there are a lot. Oh, think, shit. You'd think the Academy would be on this, but every year there is a score of people working in the industry that just do not get mentioned. And Chris Cabin, if you follow him on Twitter at Crabin,、uh, C R A B I N, might as well give him a plug. Every year after the Academy Awards, he does a whole thread of everybody who got、uh, farinaed from the Oscars. 
Oh dear. And I see where this is headed. <laughs> yeah, uh, this year, for example, uh, Peggy Lipton, Sid Haig, Luke Perry. Luke Perry. Luke was, Perry? He, he died uh, last year, and he was in, like technically in, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like one of the nominated films. And he did not get a mention, neither did Tim Conway. And important to this podcast, neither did Kieran Kiki. She went... When she died in 2018, she did not get included in the memoriam section. Oh, dear Lord. And now but, and now we have an even greater, greater upset here. Yeah. Uh, so this is what kind of inspired this episode, where it, it was a kind of sudden programming shift. Because uh, they left out one of... Japanese cinema's most recognizable actors. Recognizable both for his talent, both for his appearances in significant films in Japanese cinematic history. And his face! And just recognizable because of his appearance. They left out Joe fucking Shishido. Why? It baffles me. And... This happens every year, as I said. They leave out a lot of people from their Oscar montage uh, of dearly departed actors, professionals within the industry. But their reasoning for this always baffles people. Like, how does it keep happening? And don't don't sell me on this shit that he died too close to the ceremony. Uh, Joe Shishido passed, unfortunately, on January 20th, 20th of 2020. Kirk Douglas died February 5th. And he closed out the memoriam section. Well, yeah. So that's another... But then again, you know, considering the uh, judging or the um, requirements to be a part of the Academy and who exactly gets priority in, um, you know, in a... the selection process, I'm not exactly surprised, but I am very offended. Uh, you want to know what makes it even weirder? Okay. Uh, Suzuki Seijin got mentioned when he died in 2017. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, so, uh, the director of a bunch of films that featured Joshi Shido to some capacity, yeah, he gets mentioned, but his, his main star for his main film in his canon of weird experimental genre cinema that he made doesn't get the nod and we're gonna correct that today yes we have quite a bit of joe shishido fangirling to do from both of us absolutely so let's just get into it The underground crime syndicate is in chaos, as every two-bit hitman is driven to climb the ranks to be crowned Japan's number one hitman in this world of deception, espionage, and bloodshed. One such ambitious killer is Hanada Goro, Joshishido, a sexually esoteric contract killer whose taste for women and rice only rivals his skills with a handgun. Possessed with becoming the coveted number one, Hanada is driven to madness as his lofty life crumbles around him as he kills his way to the top of the mountain. Or, in the words of the immortal Christopher Ludacris Bridges, don't slip up or get got. I'm coming for the number one spot. This is Branded to Kill, as directed by Suzuki Seijin in 1967. I'm sorry. Aruba, we're finally doing it. I'm sorry, I'm still giggling over uh, his taste for woman and rice. Can we, can we start with the rice, please? We'll, we'll get to that, we'll get to that, but uh, there's a lot we want to talk about in this film. It's one of my personal favorites. Uh, Aruba is also quite fond of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is coming from someone who's quite squeamish with violence. I, I, I love this film. And I'm, I'm 
I, I'm pretty sure Chris has memories of me covering my face at the slightest um, trickle of blood on screen. So, yeah, coming from who's coming from someone who uh, detests violent films and um, also, quite frankly, from a Bollywood background, I am quite fond of this film, just of the way Suzuki Seijin was able to, um, I guess, make it tame for somebody like me. Well, it's extreme. Like, uh, it's part of his aesthetic strategy that it's incredibly aestheticized violence. Uh, it's like with a lot of the assassination scenes, it's all over the top. It's all extremely exaggerated. It's all comedic it, it, it all really... as hell and so Bollywood as well. I know you're going to hate that. I know you hate that comparison, but oh my God, this film is really Bollywood. I mean, there's, it's not like three hours long and there's not like four pointless musical numbers, but whatever. There's a musical number. It was pointless. Right. So, as we were saying, um, this is the reason why we wanted to single out this film from Shishido Joe and his intense career is that all of his skills as an actor, all of his skills as a personality are on intense display in this film. Uh, he frequently in his career, he played the, the hot-headed uh, gangster or thug or something along these lines. And in, in this film, he elevates that to absurd degrees. He is the coolest motherfucker with a gun that you could ever come across in one of these type of noirish uh, Japanese films that were really popular in the 60s and 70s to combat the influence of Western films, like, you know, from the West, um, American films, essentially. And he is, he is just like a... He's just a firebrand in this film. Like, he's exploding at the slightest provocation. And and then in the next scene, he could be the coolest cucumber that you've ever come across. It's so... His, his skill, his range in presenting this character of the obsessed hitman is phenomenal. His talent is heavily concentrated in this film. It's just... It's definitely something that, um, I guess, Suzuki truly wanted... Um, like, it's only something Joe could do. And to be able to do what you explained with that face, with that... Um... So for those of you who don't know, uh, Shishido Joe got implants in his cheek. Uh, don't ask me why. I never actually researched that far. But um, yeah, he basically looks like a chipmunk uh, for... Like, he looks like a little baby chip chipmunk with pinchable cheeks, but uh, he still is a cool mother effer. Yeah, but he, he looks he looks slightly comedic in everything he does, but at the same time, he has such a presence. Like, he really fills out his characters. He's and... a slick... He's a slick mofo. I, I'm trying to restrict the swearing because I have parents in the other room, and I'm a good Muslim girl, okay? Sure, sure. <laughs> and... And I actually know the reason why he did the cheek implants thing, uh, and and it's well known. Uh, it's a well known uh, story behind it. Is that he was getting t in his like previous career before getting the implants done, he was getting typecast in a bunch of uh, smaller roles in a bunch of films that nobody would really see, and he felt like his career was stagnant. So he took this elective surgery uh, to really make himself stand out, and in for whatever reason, it worked. Yeah, he find. He finally found an audience who wanted to see his bulbous face <laughs> point a gun at people. And yeah, it's just ridiculous how you could do that surgery to yourself and it could help your career. What's funny is that um, in recent Japanese uh, variety shows, anytime anybody does a monobane or an impression of Shilojo, what they'll do is they'll literally take giant pieces of bread and stuff them in their cheeks and literally come out and that's 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 their impression of Joe. That's how influential those chipmunk cheeks cheeks have become for not only uh Seijun's films but also for um recent Japanese media as well. Like he's not forgotten. Yeah, he has such a great legacy and What's amazing about a lot of the films uh, that he starred in and that we like talk about, like as 
building his brand as an actor is that like we barely even notice the cheeks when we talk about it because True. his talent his talent is so just obvious like his his way that he can present like these unstable characters like uh mm-hmm. for example for example in branded to kill like so much of the film is him being a completely cool completely stoic like a uh, assassin type character who has no qualms about taking the, another life and is all about climbing the ranks uh, for his own benefit. But there are so many shades to this character. He is an absolute, like, he's an absolute monstrous sex fiend. Uh, he he is completely vulnerable, and he breaks down at, like, the slightest provocation when, like, things start to get out of control for him. Like, there is so much to Goro Hanada. And it's so interesting that... Uh, Suzuki and his team of writers because uh, he was a contract uh, director at Nikatsu mm-hmm. at the time. We'll get into that. Um, he had like a whole kind of uh, assembly, assembled crew of writers who helped him with these uh, insane plots and stories and such. And for this one, I believe uh, if I remember correctly, Shishido had some input on how the character would be written. And it's one of those all-time great performances where I can't see anybody else from this nation cinema or any nation cinema who could do this kind of performance. Maybe Nicolas Cage? Maybe Nicolas Cage. uh, Yeah, we could try. We could try with Nicolas Cage, see how that works. But it's interesting to note how um, that uh, probably Shishido had a say in how the character goes because throughout the entirety of the film... We do say it's comedic, and we say it's just a pleasure to watch just because of how um, funny the whole situations are. But what's really funny is Shishido taking this character so freaking seriously, probably knowing all too well how hilarious the situation is around him. But because of, like, the way to really convince some... The key to playing comedy is to actually... Be as serious as you can in the situation. You know what I mean? It's either you're reacting to the absurdity with all seriousness, or you're playing along like with that cheesy comedy full house type of funny. And we nobody needs any full house type of funny uh, anywhere, anywhere besides full house. Okay, like Shishido here concentrates solely on uh Hanada's downfall you know he's like keeps having all this shit happen to him all throughout the film you know the girl he likes is like getting tortured on a movie screen oh shit I gotta like he doesn't think oh shit I gotta react to this he is actually hold on sincerely looking at the screen being worried for what's her name Masako Misako Misako Misako, okay? And, like, it's funny because it's absurd how he's observing this situation through a TV screen, but... Not a TV screen, sorry. Like, a projection screen. But... Like... Do you know what I mean, Chris? It's like the uh, polarity of his utter... um, His utter sincerity and then the absurdity of the situation. Yeah, like, uh, he, his whole, uh, it's a, it's a tragedy of, it's a tragedy of Goro Hanada, who, like, had his entire life figured out, essentially. He was a contract killer. He had something that he was extremely good at, uh, and he lived a life of luxury with his trophy wife, and everything just kind of made sense. And then one thing, like, one, one piece of the puzzle suddenly, uh, disappears, like, and nothing makes sense anymore. His entire world, like, unravels, and it's it's really desperate to watch because uh as you were saying like he treats it with the utmost serious seriousness um uh joe shishido in his performance like he is giving it his all in every scene and it works so well mm-hmm. for for this type of uh yakuza noir film mm-hmm. uh I, I i guess we didn't start like talking about certain Point, uh, points and things about the film and uh, the rice fetish. Ah, yes. <laughs> so this was an idea that was thrown out in the writer's room 
and apparently from legend and it just kind of stuck with the character uh hanada a who has a weird sexual hang-up where he can only get aroused from the smell of boiling rice <laughs> and that's not just like a that's not just a point in his character that's not like a, a thing like that comes back all the time oh yes it really does and at first i was um when i first saw it way back when i was like oh my gosh so in this western film like in this very essentially uh western noir bond like film they added that you know little sense of tradition like tradition is the sexiest thing that could ever happen but the fact that they kept coming back to it i'm like oh okay okay i see how it is and then uh personal story here but as soon as soon as i was done the film i went out and my mom was cooking rice and i was like I was actually trying, I was trying so hard <laughs> to, like, be in the, you just never smell rice the same way again after watching this film, I gotta say. I was trying, but unfortunately, I couldn't get myself there, but it does make you smell rice differently. <laughs> and, and like, the euphoric way that uh, Shishido does it, like, he's, like, hunched over a like a rice cooker just wafting the fumes into getting, his mouth and like getting a sexy steam getting a sexy uh, rice steam bath there it's like so seductive in the way he does it and it's so ridiculous in just in bare concept i one of my favorite scenes it's like it's during that whole uh, montage sequence of him and his trophy wife uh fucking uh what what was her name uh it was uh, mommy yeah. mommy and like yeah there's a whole really really beautifully done montage sequence after um after shishido's first contract kill what we see in the film they go back to his weird like postmodern apartment which yeah. has like no furniture in it and spiral just, staircase and everything just we see them uh him and his wife like constantly fucking in like pretty much every room of this house <laughs> except for the bedroom Except for the bedroom, which is, like, it just speaks to his character. And constantly we see, like, in, interspersed within this montage of sex scenes is him smoking, like, uh, not smoking, but, like, inhaling the rice fumes. And it's my favorite <laughs> shot in the whole film. Because it, it shows him doing that. And then it's a pan to uh, Mommy, who's, like, eating a piece of bread and goes, like, and holds her nose going, like, stop it, pervert. <laughs> That's, yeah. I, I love that whole montage itself too because i love the um i love the way the camera focuses on certain aspects of the uh i guess you could say interior of the um house like and they're just like effing through corners and you could see it through the the stair uh through the staircase you could see it through the table you could see it through the like it's it's just art yeah that, that whole apartment is like this exaggerated minimalist set where it's it's so vacant it, it has so much mm. empty space to it it's like an antonioni film and it's it fits for the character and it's it's a nice thing about um because obviously as a contract killer he doesn't he doesn't get the same kind of pleasures that normal people would from normalcy from <laughs> having like from, just from having a home that they can go back to like he's constantly on the job but it's it's an aspect of the situation that Suzuki was in where as a as a director, like a contract director at Nikatsu, who he was given a bunch of genre work and like he was given scripts to work with. And so long as he delivered, like he, he saw like very little oversight from the people who ran the actual film company. So he got a lot of freedom and Brandon to kill was him pushing that to the extreme. And should we, should we talk about that now? Yes, let's do it. Let's do it, please, because this is the reason why I, as someone who is incredibly squeamish, who is incredibly, um, who basically goes whiter than the whitest person on earth at the sight of blood, and I'm brown. <laughs> um, but despite the amount of bloodshed in this film, and despite the fact that it was also black and white, um, I, in particular very love very much love the uh violence and it that's a lot to say coming from me just because of um the way uh suzuki has been able to make it so 
like like we said before, absurd in a way that it's just so comedic. And this goes back into the Suzuki Saging problem where uh, we learned, Chris and I, in, ja- uh, once again, Japanese film back, back in the day, that uh, when Suzuki was a um, fighting in the war during World War II, he would uh, watch... Um, he would watch uh, fighters and and uh, his teammates basically get killed. He, they would be like walking the plank and um, jumping into the ocean, jumping out of planes, and he would find that hilarious. Like he would um, apparently like that's where he found his inspiration to be able to kind of conduct how funny and um, I guess borderline psychotic if that's a word um so that's the best way i could explain um the dichotomy here just because it is very reminiscent of i hate to say it america's funniest home videos where the um you see the little kids getting hurt like i guess so i guess that's one place you can take it um but it's it's a complete it makes sense for uh Suzuki as a director to take this kind of absurdist worldview from his uh, from his experiences of war because uh, uh, like yeah obviously like he's seeing his friends die and either that breaks you that breaks you in one way and you become completely emotionally distant or you just kind of get the absurdity of it all he is he's like I, see now I'm gonna make a bad reference but he's like Japanese cinema's Joker oh here we go. <laughs> Like he he sees like like the he's he finds the comedy in tragedy and and what isn't branded a ki- what is branded a kill if not a tragedy where well, that is has a lot of com- comedic elements to it but as you were saying like with the violence and like the exaggerated register that this whole film is running at like it's pulpy as hell oh it's, yeah it's like it's a noir film through and through and almost every scene uh, Suzuki opts for the most absurd esoteric angle to capture it like every mm-hmm. every space is treated more for mood than for like logistical planning or seeing the best of what's transpiring on screen it's yeah. all goofy it's all <laughs> it's like a living cartoon like and it works it works so well for this narrative like for example like you mentioned your favorite shot and i'm gonna i'm gonna go into my favorite shot here oh i i have a lot i have a lot of favorite shots. Yeah. <laughs> all right but what my absolute favorite shot or pretty much up there is when um i think during the second or third shootout um uh she though character enters a building and it's it's chaotic and he, everything everybody's dying but uh in the final shot of the shootout uh he kills a guy in in a spinny chair and the chair starts to spin around and then once you think everything is safe a hot air balloon rises up from the building and you see another gunman trying to uh shoot from the top well no 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 it's actually Shishizo's character who is trying to shoot um an assailant from the top of a freaking hot air balloon through a window as the guy's spinning in the it's it's great it's it's fantastic that whole sequence is amazing because it begins like in a POV shot with um, uh, w- with uh, Shishido like entering the entering this like a uh, apartment or like this like office and gunning down all the like the guards that are there and then like as he moves towards the window and like checks the clock like it leaves his perspective like it like drifts behind him the camera drifts behind him and around him and it kind of like, reveals like that he was doing all the killing the entire time and it's such a weird way to break down that sequence and it's it, it's a way that like for all the gun battles and all like the scenes of violence they are so weirdly inventive like uh he has like three contract kills uh, we see in the in like the main bulk of the film and in the first one he snipes someone through a advertisement like like a a moving billboard and the second one he shoots them through a pipe like up up through a water drain up through a sink to a, a to a doctor who's like <laughs> leaning over the sink uh, a scene that was uh completely stolen by ghost dog the jim jarmusch film and <laughs> Yeah, like, and for this one, like, it's all done in POV shots. 
and this is what we were like what i was referring to with this is like the benefits of being a contract director at the time is that so long as you delivered a film under budget like you could do whatever you wanted pretty much um this also goes back into i believe i discussed this in episode one in battle royale in our battle royale episode but do you remember when i mentioned something about kill choreography Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the kill choreography, I, I don't have any information on this particular film, how they exactly uh, choreographed um, their own fight shots, but um, they look spontaneous AF. They look, uh, they don't look rehearsed in many ways, but at the same time, they do just because of how the final product appears to be so manipulated, if like manipulated and just like i said absurdist it's it's great i love the court like if there is choreography in here i just i love it no obviously there was obviously there, there was well, yeah I've... at at points yes i could tell there was but like in certain certain shootouts i'm like huh <laughs> no it, it just it just plays to how well like this film is constructed because w- within the shootouts they are there's like multiple of them, by the way, because at one point he's he's doing contract kills, but on the other time he's being like hounded by his organization, the the underground organization that we're not really given a lot of information on because as a noir film, we're not really privy to that information. It doesn't matter. We just want to know like the psych the psychological breakdown of our main character who are who's our guide through this underworld. And yeah, it worked it just works so well with Suzuki's manner of exaggeration uh like in the first sequence when he and another another like uh i guess contract killer who's left the business essentially are escorting somebody like up through their, their mission is like an escort mission for uh this one high paying client and they wind up uh being assaulted on the road by multiple like m- multiple hit squads and the way that it's broken down by Suzuki is so strange. Like, you get these long shots of people just falling falling down after you hear, like, a, a gunshot go off. <laughs> you, you hear these, like, ex- extreme close-ups of, of, of people, like, dying. And there's no... It's so hard to parse space in this film. Like, it's so hard to, like, think of... Like, think of an environment where a gunshot... Where, where a gunfight is going down and plot it out in your head because there is there's so little logic to it all and like it doesn't matter like it doesn't it's all about the um, the emotional impact of these scenes like uh do you remember uh when when his partner for that escort mission who has been drinking the entire time starts running at uh his assailant with like foaming at the mouth with his gun yes yes i do that's one of my <laughs> one of my recorded scenes here yeah, he runs at them, and it's like this slow motion shot of him, like like screaming something along the lines of like "I will kill you," and then it just cuts to him being embraced by the killer and getting shot in the stomach. <laughs> like, like there, there's no, it just completely cuts out a whole section of that action sequence, and it just works. It really does. Can we talk about as well uh, when uh, Haneda basically runs into Wednesday Adams? Oops, I'm sorry, Misako. <laughs> And talk about how yes. awesome she is. <laughs> so, as a noir film, obviously we need a femme fatale of some type. But this isn't like a femme fatale of... Like, not just a lady of death as we know it in the noir film. This woman is obsessed with dying. Okay. Uh, he, so, after this contract mission, his car breaks down and he's he's picked up by Misaku, who, Misako, who's played by Anumari. Mm-hmm. And... She is the weirdest character in this film, and that's saying a lot. Yeah. I mean, I actually would say she was the most normal character in this film on the, on the actual incorrect. perspective Completely side, but I incorrect. guess I say she's the most normal. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Maybe, maybe as a girl I find her normal, but... Do all girls collect dead bodies of, oh, like, that... birds and uh, insects and uh, paint them all over their walls and... Abesada, Abesada. <laughs> what? Abesada, the woman who, the woman who chopped her lover lover's uh, te- uh testicles off and carried them in her purse. Yeah, that's a unique case. <laughs> I mean, like I don't know. I just, I, 
I relate. <laughs> oh, no, like, uh, per fatalism, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> wanting, wanting to die, sure, sure, like, I get that, like, I get that girl, but at the same time, like, the she collecting is... of dead bodies, the collection of dead bodies, sure, that's, that's over the top, but at the same time, you know, dude gets turned on by rice, okay? No, no, no one's normal in this film, that's not my case, I'm just saying that she's, <laughs> she sticks out because she completely grinds the film to a halt because and of... she's a completely different aesthetic to everything else in the film too I... yeah uh anumari is a indo-japanese actress um who is who is selected for a bunch of these uh bit parts in exploitation films as well as these types of like uh genre pulp types of film because she stood out she was exotic and mm-hmm. uh she could do a very stern type of presentation of herself and it yeah. works really well in brand to kill she's very she's very alluring to watch and it was quite interesting that they had uh they casted her as a completely japanese person i was normally um normally when anybody shows any um exotic features whatsoever you know they get cast even today uh, obviously they get cast as you know somebody who com- has a completely different heritage, but no, her name is Chujo Mari, uh, is it Misako? Yeah, Chujo, Chujo Misako, and she's a fully Japanese character with a very exotic look, which was very, I guess, interesting to see, especially for the 50s. 60s. Oh, 60s, my bad. Yeah, uh, it's, it, it just helps this film, like, stand out much, much more, that it, it kind of takes these risks and really tries to, like, as you were saying, like, aestheticize nearly everything. It's not just that he's obsessed with this uh, woman who herself is obsessed with death. Uh, he's obsessed with this other, this uh, completely different thing to his, um, well, well, I'm not going to say, like, his uh, mommy's not beautiful, but, like, she's a very conventional uh, Japanese standard of beauty. Mm-hmm. And, and Anumari, like, and her stoic morticia wednesday adams look yeah morticia adams is definitely the thing uh not only because of her obsession with death but also because she outcools uh goro hanada because like his obsession for her becomes a weakness to him oh, while yeah. she she shows no emotion whatsoever through the entirety of the film she's completely <laughs> blank slated she really is and that's what i think that was um a good testament to uh, Suzuki selection for this character just because I don't see any other um, new wave actors filling that role and it's very very um, she's someone who's very interesting to watch especially as as somebody who's uh, they see um, you know she's playing a fully Japanese character but to me looks like somebody like well she looks like a family member to me she actually looks like my cousin and she's very uh she's she's a very good buffer to um all the absurd violence that's going around just because she adds a whole lot of depth to um hanada which was essentially missing for the first half of the film yeah like uh she's an extremely macabre character and he, he become like she becomes his uh one point of obsession like that he's willing to risk his entire way of life for and it's so interesting because when like after his wife betrays him and um gets in good with the organization and tries to kill him he holds up at misako's apartment and they do this whole like dance of death (laughs) wherein like in one scene like they're trying to kill one another and then another the other scene he is trying to have sex with her and she's like rebuffing him and it's this whole like spy versus spy like that mad magazine cartoon like just back and forth of just comedic nonsense and it like it it elevates so much and then it just drops yeah and i just realized, like she she becomes normal essentially i just realized like when you said cartoon like shishido both shishido and anumari they do look rather cartoonish just by their appearance alone yeah it's true it's true like um <laughs> exaggerated like unquote unquote exaggerated features uh her being like uh, an ethnic minority him big eyes being... big eyes big lips and big booty mm-hmm. and and him being 
his face, having that face. <laughs> that uh, they, it, it's almost like like they were made for each other in a sense. But again, they try. They spend most of the film trying to kill each other, and and that only like that only strengthens his obsession and infatuation for her because like he has that fatalistic mindset too, where he can only really understand people killing each other. Mm-hmm. It's she's definitely a. She's a very welcome addition to the film once we get to once we meet her and get to know her. And and like it's a complete contrast to Mommy uh, Hanada, like his his trophy wife, which is just like the epitome of women be shopping because that's, that's all she does. <laughs> yep. <laughs> she was definitely she like she was written to be annoying. She was written to be annoying and her actress also uh understood that and definitely amped up the uh pitch of her voice. Oh yeah, like she she was supposed to be um, like th- we were never supposed to buy any kind of real love between Hanada and his wife, but it makes sense because uh, she betrays him. He doesn't care. He is only using her for sex anyway. He was use- she was using him for money. She was and... all about the D as well. Yep, and like that's that's what they do for most of the film. They don't talk to each other. <laughs> they just <laughs> yeah. fuck, and that's that's fine. Like that's fine. Like what else? Because. Hanada says himself, like, a contract killer cannot have any vices, he cannot fall in love, he can't drink, and eventually he does break all those rules. Yep. <laughs> breaks them and, the, and makes his yeah, own. Yeah, go ahead. Breaks them and makes his own, that's all I was gonna say. Yeah, and that's the whole, like, that's kind of like the thesis of the film, is that, like, to live this kind of life, you can't have any weaknesses. And Hanada has them all, and they come at him in rapid succession, and that—that's what formulates his downfall. He can't—he cannot have any addictions, any vices. He becomes a full-blown alcoholic, a self-destructive alcoholic. He can't fall in love. He becomes obsessed with um, with, with Misako, and will do anything to protect her, even at his own safety, even at risking his own safety. And yeah, although uh, although I do um, want to give Mummy some credit for a particular scene where she has a breakdown, um, in this like messy cat eye kind of um, uh, shot, and it's very Ophelia like in nature, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah, because like um, after she shoots uh, Gora, which amazingly his belt buckle stops the bullet which is great like that's that's just a stupid weird touch that i'm so glad they included in the film um she she uh gets in good with the uh organization as i said and goro comes to kill her and she makes all these pleas and tries to seduce him does everything and she get has this whole breakdown like just telling him like i had no choice and it's like these really intense close-ups like there's like three shots of her from like different angles and these really intensive close-up close-ups of her explaining herself and begging for forgiveness and and in contrast like uh in that scene goro is just comp- shishido is completely in shadow mm-hmm. like not giving a single concession to his wife and it's cold it's completely hard-hearted but it has to be really does i just love i i I just particularly enjoyed that. Just the, the it it was like an Ophelia type of um, build up to that, where she was she seemed relatively uh, normal in quotation marks. I say um, throughout the majority of the film. Then she has this like breaking point where all shit goes loose. And to quote Lisa Simpson from The Simpsons, nobody out crazies Ophelia. That's what. That's the uh, uh, impression that I got there. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, number one. Uh, do you gotta go? Haha. <laughs> 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 anyway, so the no- the number one assassin in in like all of this organization of like all the contract killers in Japan uh, reveals himself to Goro as like the original person who hired him for the escort mission and did we wait number... did, did we mention that goro is number three? Oh no uh okay. but like yeah he he's number three at the beginning of the film after he does uh that escort mission he kills number two and he's like on the cusp of becoming number one and that becomes his one of his obsessions along with misako and 
So number one reveals himself to him and starts to play this game to psychologically break him. <laughs> I love it. it. It's just like, this is how number one apparently works. So, uh, Goro goes back to Misako's apartment to, I guess, see her. And then he's confronted with a phone call by number one saying like, Hey, I've got a gun on you right now. Oh yeah. And Misako's apartment has a bunch of windows. So we don't know if he's telling the truth or not. And, Goro believes it, and this is where the film got too real yeah. with our current, with the current state of the world. A little because bit, yeah, a little bit, like, reminiscing on that, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. So, we see a long, drawn-out uh, sequence, like, or montage of Goro trying to maintain his sanity within this one apartment, and it's all shot, like, through these insane angles, like, for, and, like, uh, Suzuki either points the camera straight at the roof and Goro just a little bit uh, at, at the bottom of the frame or he points it at the ground and we see like him off to the side or anything. It's a really absurd kind of way to shoot space. But yeah, we're essentially seeing a man go stir crazy with the threat of an invisible, like, with an invisible threat looming outside. He can't leave or else he puts himself at risk and the virus is constantly taunts the virus. I just... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow, Chris. Wow. Number one is constantly taunting him through the phone and through updates, saying like, telling him what he's doing and like that he's constantly watching him. So yeah, this is this is too real for a COVID nineteen world that we're living in. This this became a quarantine film, and we didn't even know it. Yeah, we watched this before we were quarant uh, quarantined, and I actually specifically have written in my notes: these last thirty minutes are exhausting. <laughs> They, it's like it's a ca it's cabin fever like it's complete uh it's so overbearing and like it's ah it's it's so it's so hard to watch now but it, it's done so well because this is uh shishido's breaking point uh his character's breaking point and we see him really really show a vulnerability mm -hmm. like he's he, he's begging he's begging to be able to leave for them to show himself he's like breaking down over misako and like how he can't see her anymore and how he's uh, how she's like under the thumb of this organization now and yes. it's so frantic so so insane to see him like claw at these walls uh, from a character who we originally were introduced like with the shades on asking for just a bowl of rice like he's, he's he's a different man now and it all stems from his inability to complete a contract and it's sad to see him deteriorate yeah well you really do become a different man when you're forced to pee while handcuffed to another man of your that, that hasn't that that hasn't happened yet <laughs> i mean by that yes by that point he is like deteriorating quite a bit but like you there's really no tur him turning back after that scene of him being forced to pee next to number one no i'm, I'm saying that hasn't happened yet because like after he sufficiently breaks um Hanada, number one, reveals himself and, like, says, like, we're just going to be in quarantine together now. Oh, okay, wait. Then where's my... Okay. I guess my notes want to lie. <laughs> so, yeah, like, um, part of his whole strategy is to show up at Hanada's door and say, like, I'm number one. I've, I've been the one that's been fucking with you. Let's just live together and become the odd couple for a bit. <laughs> yep, that was... It was... That Those scenes were fantastic, I gotta say. They were... They made all the violence worthwhile because we get we get very hilarious shots of um, them being tied to the bed together, um, sleeping with eyes open, peeing arm in arm, uh, and then there's like a scene where a delivery man comes in and he tries to drop off a package and he's just like, nah, nah, not today. <laughs> it's it's so it's so ridiculous when like. A uh, girl is trying to get to sleep. He turns over and sees number one with his eyes wide open. And he's like, hey, are you awake? And he like starts like, oh, that was a good nap. <laughs> it's like, what, you don't sleep with your eyes open? <laughs> Man, you're, you're not... You're not good enough to be number one if you can't sleep with your eyes open. Like, what? Yep. <laughs> I'll be number one. Tosses a balloon. <laughs> it's, it's so fucking stupid. And it, it just... It becomes a complete nonsense comedy at that point, and it's so enjoyable because we we saw we saw Goro at his like lowest point, completely racked with racked with guilt, racked with paranoia, drinking himself close to death, 
and then all of a sudden it becomes this sitcom. Yep. It, 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 this was just basically coming on the cusp of um, it having meaning, just because uh, Goro has a very human weakness, which is Misako, and he doesn't want, uh, he wants to protect her at all costs, but killers have to be inhuman. They have to be inhumane AF in this situation, and he's just showing, like, that ounce of uh, of a very human weakness kind of gets washed over with this odd couple uh, play here, this uh, little playing house type of dealio here. <laughs> I, I love how they both agree to put their guns on the table, and any slight movement of uh, number one makes Goro just, like, rush to his the guns to, like, make sure that he doesn't... <laughs> grab it first because like he doesn't know he's completely broken at this point he's a he's an absolute mess oh and then at the very very end where they end up in a theater misako walking in so so injured so stupid so it was it was great i love the excess bandages uh bandages where they didn't belong uh, it's it's a cartoon. It's, it's an absolute cartoon. Like this is this is what Wiley e. Coyote would would be dressed up as after one of his acne things doesn't go well. It's basically itchy and scratchy. It's the itchy and scratchy show. Yeah, like that's what <laughs> it is. That's that's what um th- that that's what uh, Goro and Misako were doing. That was like it was an itchy and scratchy episode. <laughs> and he like I have here written my notes, and he did. Not. Okay. And now she did. Yeah, like, uh, he confronts number one at a boxing arena, and he wins. He, like, he, he wins, he guns him down, he outflanks him, he outsmarts number one. Then Misako enters the building, and he shoots him, and shoots her. And then girl's just, like, left going, like, yay, I'm number one, and then the film ends. Yep. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it felt like, like... I'm, I'm making a very, very uh, vague, I'm about to make a very, very vague um, comparison here, but um, it's like, <laughs> that uh, celebratory ending gets, like, when your celebratory ending gets cut short for no reason at all, it's like that, uh, like the ce- celebratory ending in Nausicaa, where, <laughs> I mean, this is like a whole other world and a whole, whole not-so-comedic uh, comparison, but, like, when Nausicaa, um, defeats, spoiler, whatever the fuck's going on, um, she celebrates with her village, and then it gets cut after, like, a minute of celebrating, and here, literally, the celebration is, I'm number one, and then cut. Yeah, like, um, we don't need any more, he probably dies from his injury, because he was shot by, uh, number one in this whole altercation that they have, but it doesn't matter, because, like, we we don't need any more. Like his character is sufficiently broken. He he earned what he was striving for the entire film. It's like what more do you want? Like of, this is what this lifestyle of contract killing does to these people. He is he's not human anymore. He's he's insane. Like he was driven to madness by this all. What more do I want? I want more shots with rice. That's what I want. I think there's sufficiently enough rice <laughs> shots in this film for to you last can never. Uh, you can never have enough rice shots. Perhaps. <laughs> so, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened after this film was released. Okay. Alright, let's do that. So, Suzuki, in his later years, like after uh, completing this film, gave a lot of interviews where he said, like, I'm, I make films that don't make sense and don't make money. Mm-hmm. And that's all stemming from the fact that Brent the Kill got him fired. Yes, yes. The um, very famous Suzuki Seijun versus Nikatsu, um, like, uh, ordeal lawsuit. here. Yeah, lawsuit here. So what what happened was, they were, Nikatsu uh, was, always had problems with uh, Suzuki, because although he, he did deliver the films on time, and usually under budget, uh, he, his films didn't make a lot of money because they were very esoteric, they were really weird, and he was, he experimented all the time, and it didn't really connect with a lot of audiences. Brandon the Kill was his most 
with his most like experimental film up to that point and when it released nobody saw it yeah there's 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 a great anecdote of uh joe shishido saying like yeah the weekend of the film when the film came out he was drinking with a bunch of like his friends his crew that he uh walked around with and said like hey my movie came out this weekend let's go see it and they watched it in an empty theater and and joe and joe like has like a thing like i wonder what this means this this can't be good right (laughs) oh could you imagine like could you imagine just gathering up all your all your uh friends and just making uh like you know you just want them to support you and all and then they just see how unloved you are for your time. It's yeah, <laughs> and what had happened? What what happened after that is that Mikatsu fired him, and Suzuki, uh, obviously he sued back uh, due to uh, like wrongful termination, and he got a lot of support from uh, the Directors Guild that's in Japan, and like a lot of like student uh, film clubs and film organizations, and. He was supported through all that and won. He won his case. Mm-hmm. But what transpired after that is he was blacklisted from the industry and essentially That's what was I, yeah. unable to make films. That's essentially what happens whenever you try and fight somebody bigger in the enta- entertainment industry in Japan. Once, um, like, basically filing lawsuits is the end of you, no matter if you win or lose. You're, you're done for. So he knew very... He knew going into that lawsuit that this was the end of um any type of relationship he could um really hope for with Nikatsu but the fact that he was blacklisted was probably not surprising to him in the least which is insane cuz like he he worked at that company for since like 1956 with his first film of Victory is Mine like he had a 10 a decade relationship with this company mm-hmm. and then Brandon to Kill was like the straw that broke the the camel's back so to speak and since that film came out uh that was 1967 he didn't make another film till 1977 and he never really worked for another company or another like film production company in the same kind of way he relied on independent films like independent like production uh financers who are like outside of the industry to a degree and he stayed active but he there was a whole decade of his career where he did not make a single film. And for a guy who had made, under Nikatsu, made like three a year, can you imagine what that shift must have done to him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, it's one of the tragedies of uh, the Japanese film industry just in general. It's like where we had this, we had this unique, esoteric voice within the industry who was able to work under uh under like the company's thumb and make himself known through his aesthetics through his style through his worldview that was represented in all his films and then when it came down to it like it was too much like he was too unique so they had to like they couldn't have him anymore and yeah i understand like brendan to kill it didn't make money so that's a problem but at the same time it's like how can you not want to work with him? Yeah, so on that note, Chris, is there anything else we got to discuss? No, I, th- I think we covered it sufficiently, uh, considering the extraordinary circumstances that we're working under. I think we talked enough about the film to a satisfactory degree, and its legacy, its, uh, its importance to both the history of Japanese cinema, to the career of Suzuki, the career of Shishido, mm-hmm. and hopefully this inspires a lot of people to... Uh, if this gets listeners to, like, seek out more of his work. Because mm-hmm. Shishido was one of those presences where whenever he, like, randomly popped up in a film from, like, the 60s or 70s, like, it made that film so much better. It really did. And plus, at the same time, uh, this is a, um, watching Suzuki's films as well is a good opportunity to really look at the uh, whole um, experimental phase that uh, Japanese cinema was really going through at the time. So actually, I have here a quote from uh, uh, Kusaku Hori, the Nikatsu president who fired uh, Suzuki. Okay. This is what, um, this is what essentially was his reasoning for firing Suzuki. 
Suzuki makes incomprehensible films. Suzuki does not follow the company's orders. Suzuki's films are unprofitable, and it costs 60 million yen to make one. Suzuki, Suzuki can no longer make films anywhere. He should quit Suzuki. He should quit. Suzuki should open a noodle shop or something instead. Harsh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> and that's the exact reason why you should watch this. Yeah. Like, uh, executives at film companies, they, they don't know what makes a good film. They rarely do. Mm-hmm. They rarely do. They just want to make the monies. Open a noodle shop. The, the fucking nerve of that guy. Jesus. I want noodles. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. But with that, I think we've covered most of our bases, and I, I feel like we were quite coherent, despite the fact that we have been looking at four white walls uh, this entire time. Yeah. Before recording, yeah. yep. <laughs> so, uh, just just a real quick thing. Uh, some other uh, Joshito films to check out. Um, like uh, these were like I I did a whole thing last year where I was watching a bunch of uh, Japanese noir films for like a an essay that I was writing. Uh, I ended up like scrapping that essay instead, just writing on Tokyo Drifter, another Suzuki film. But some of the ones were like. So some of the films that I saw where Shishido is a absolute standout that you should absolutely uh, check out. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, De- Detective Bureau 23 Go to Hell Bastards. Uh, Voice Without a Shadow. Youth of the Beast. Cruel Gun Story. Gate of Flesh. A Cold is My Passport. And uh, what was that other one that I saw? Oh, The Most Terrible Time in My Life. So, find all of those films out there, check them out, uh, if you want to really experience uh, Shishido's qualities as an actor, his unmistakable, unique presence. As, as And of course, also watch Brandon the Kill. Yes. From one squeamish violence, squeamish to violence, little human, to another one that's out there listening to this, watch it. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, so, what with the quarantine and all, it seems like we have nothing but time. So, we'll probably, hopefully, get another episode out soon. Uh, Aruba, do you, do you remember what our next one is? It's the English Cowboy Spaghetti Western Django High. That. Jesus Christ, Aruba. <laughs> to be fair, I have been suppressing coughs throughout the entirety of the episode... And I'm pretty sure I'm getting lightheaded by this point. <laughs> so, Aruba, do you remember what film we're going to watch next? Sukiyaki Western Django. Yes, uh, that's the Mikei Takashi film where everybody, for what it's a Western film, and for whatever reason, everybody is speaking English phonetically. Mm-hmm. It's one of the weirder ones that I've come across in recent years, and I'm just excited to be talking about Takashi Mikie. This is actually going to be... I think this is actually going to be my first Takashi Miike film. It, oh, oh, it, come on, really? It, it might. Hold on, wait. I think it might. Hold on. I mean, obviously you wouldn't watch Audition, but... Takashi, Takashi Miike. Oh, okay. Hold on. Oh, no. I lied. I've seen Ultraman. <laughs> I've seen Zatoichi, yeah. Okay, sorry, my bad. Okay, and Harakiri. But yeah, for whatever bizarre reason, everybody's speaking English in this film, despite, to my knowledge, um, not being native speakers. No, n- no one is. They they learned all their lines phonetically, yeah. and it makes it sound really weird, really strange. But you know what? It's a choice, yeah. and. Mm-hmm. They did it, so we kind of have to just contend with that. So that'll be very exciting. Cannot wait to dig into that film and it's and even get to talk about the uh, Japanese Western because like we we talked about the Japanese noir today. So mm-hmm. and we're really excited. Just I'm personally really excited just because of the amount of A-listers it has. So no, this is a stacked cast. Yeah, like this uh, is yeah, this is a great. Uh, this is going to be a good fangirling moment for me. Oh, everyone is so beautiful in this film. It's like, you know how, like, a Western is supposed to be, like, really 
like really grimy, really uh, rugged, textured. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, everyone is like every, everyone is so clean and like pristine and ooh woo pretty boy. It's like ah, doesn't make any sense. Yep, I'm excited. Gonna... And fucking Quentin Tarantino's in it. <laughs> I mean, it really does not get much better than that. Okay, it really, you. This this is great. Oh god, I'm excited. I'm excited. Let let's just hope and pray that we muster up enough energy and enough uh, motivation to get this episode out to you as quickly as we can. Yeah, we got nothing but time, so it'll happen. So <laughs> if there's nothing else, uh, have a good one. Bye. Keep yourself stay indoors. Safe. Wash your hands, don't touch your face, and always wear your seatbelt. Sorry, I stole that. Can I can you cut that out, Chris? Nope, that one's singing. Okay, see ya. <laughs> Bye.